0: Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Melanie C., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Tuesday, February 7, 2017. Today we are reading from the big book on page 4, paragraph 2. We'll read two paragraphs today. It'll be 2 and 3. And today's readers are The Twelve Steps, Laura A., the Twelve Traditions, Leslie M., and reading the text this morning will be Eileen M., Rachel W., and Lisa H. The reference number for yesterday, Monday, February 6, 2017, is 9574. 9574. The OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who th- shared Our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Laura A. to please read the 12 steps. Laura A., please press star
1: 1. Laura A, please press star 1 to unmute. Hi, this is Laura A. Can you hear me
2: now?
0: I can. Good morning to you.
2: Okay, this is Laura A from New Hampshire Recovering Compulsive Overeater. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 3. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. 4. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. 5. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 6. Were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I pass.
0: Thanks, Laura A. I will now ask Leslie M. to read the 12 traditions.
2: Good morning,
3: Melanie. Thank you for your service. This is Leslie M., uh, a recovered compulsive overeater, the 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, and I pass.
0: Thank you, leslie M. How our meeting works. Today we resume our study of the big book on page four, starting with paragraph two, then three for focus in context. And that starts with next morning, I telephoned a friend, and then ends on the top of page five with unwelcome hangers-on at the brokerage house. I will now ask Eileen M. to begin our study this morning. Star 1, Eileen. Eileen, are you with us, Star 1? Well, if she's having a little bit of trouble with that. Rachel W., can I get you to step up, please, and read that paragraph for us? Hi, this is Rachel W. Hi, thank you. Would you be able to go back? page uh paragraph two and three for us please
4: yes uh no problem thank you this is hi, good morning Millie. thanks for your service um next morning i telephoned a friend in montreal he had plenty of money left and thought i had better go to canada by the following spring we were living in our custom style i felt like napoleon returning from elba no saint helena for me but drinking caught up with me again and my generous friend had to let me go this time we stayed broke. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger on at brokerage places. Okay, so good morning, everyone. Thanks again, Melanie, for your service and for everyone on the line. And um, this is Rachel Delby, Recover Compulse, whoever you're calling from New York. Um, so, you know, we've been discussing Bill's story, and so much is coming up for me regarding the unmanageability of this disease that he spells out so clearly in his paragraphs. And um, and I'm always, you know, this section always takes me back to the movie My Name is Bill W. because those are the, like the vivid, vibrant scenes, you know. And, um I remember, you know, one of my favorite scenes is he's standing by the window and he's describing life with liquor and he's describing that he can go a few days without it. You know, there is such a thing as putting it down. But in those moments, all the fear and all the depression and, you know, all the feelings of worthlessness, they just come to the surface and it's just too much to bear and he just can't take himself anymore and so he ends up drinking again and and in spite of you know promising it to himself and to his wife and you know he just can't do anything more you know he can't he can't he can't put it down and um and and then he he goes on to just describe the wait places you know this alcohol takes him. i mean they're living with his parents how demoralizing is that and um and the fact that this affects his career i know it affected mine i was in the rooms for 10 years before i really knew what my higher power could do for me and i remember during that time yes i was recovered yeah i look great and I was even sponsoring and starting meetings, and I was being called on to speak and having all this whole, but the whole thing just fed more of my control. I controlled my sponsees. I controlled, uh, my control was out of hand. Uh, my ego was out of hand, and it just it reflected in my workplace as well. Um, so this is a really insidious thing, and yet he's standing by the window, and I remember he looks at her and he says, and you know the most insane thing is that in this moment, right now, the only thing I want is another drink, and I know that so clearly because I've seen unmanageability in my life, with with phys- physical unmanageability and in other ways. And I was just and I was just wanting more and more food. But you know what brought me back ultimately? What really brought me back into this absence? Because when I went into my relapse a few years ago, I didn't gain back much weight. I, I mean, thirty pounds—it's a lot, but you know, for a person who lost a hundred, that's not bad. But for me, what really brought me back was really, really getting how deadly this disease is, not on a physical level, but on a a mental, emotional, spiritual, the havoc it was wreaking in my life. And today, as a result directly of this program, of this meeting, today as a result i have an entirely different life i've never met so many of you but you are all so integral to my recovery and to the new life i have today where it's about putting down the food but it's about leaning into the steps and rachel i'll end with this rachel w's steps used to look like step one was unmanageability and step two was the food and now thank god you know I'm coming into the this this process of of really understanding the steps through this text and I am so so grateful so thank you for allowing me to share.
0: Thank you Rachel W. We are now reading and sharing on page 4 paragraph 3 that goes over to the top of page 5 and it starts with they went to live with my wife's parents and ends with hanger on at brokerage places. Who would like to share on that paragraph? Eileen M.
5: Hi,
1: Harlan.
0: Hi, Eileen. Hi,
1: Larry. Anyone else? Nancy
6: Aura.
1: Hi, Nancy.
0: And Vasa. Let's start with that, please, and we will begin with Harlan G. Good morning.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Team Tuesday, for your service. This is Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are talking now about spring slash summer of 1930. And Bill Wilson was certainly not the choice that the Burnhams had for their daughter, Lois. Bill was slightly younger than Lois. And when Bill was drinking, Dr. Burnham just couldn't stand it. Lois had an ectopic pregnancy and she was bleeding to death and she called her dad to come And her dad, the physician, came to the house. He was a gynecologist. Not a gynecologist, a gynecologist. But anyway, he comes to the house, and Lois is hemorrhaging terribly. She's bleeding, and he is going to take his daughter to the hospital. And they leave a note for Bill Wilson, meet us at the hospital. This is at 7 o'clock in the evening. Eight, nine o'clock the next morning, he shows up at the hospital. He stinks to high heaven. He hasn't shaved. He's filthy dirty. He smells from beer slash vomit slash urine. He comes to the hospital drunk, and Dr. Burnham is beside himself. And when Bill was doing very, very well, he was not always a nice guy about it. When he would get drunk and he was doing well, he would really rub it in the Burnhams' face. So needless to say, they had no use for their son-in-law. And here they are in 1930, spring slash summer of 30. They're going to live with the Burnhams, just what Bill wanted to do. Oy they? Then he finally gets a job. He gets home. He tells Lois he's got this job, and in a drunken rage, he gets into a fight a fist fight with a taxi driver and the job disappears and he is at the absolute he's beginning the abyss of his alcoholism. He is in an extremely unhappy situation. He is not going to get sober until December of thirty-four. This is thirty, so it's almost five years until he's going to get sober. And this is the environment that he's coming home to every single day. And this is the situation that he's in, and he's getting drunker and drunker and drunker. And in the following couple of pages here, we're going to see the roller coaster ride that he's going to take, just like I did and just like we all did, into the abyss of his addiction. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Harlan G. Eileen
1: M, press star one, please. Star one, Eileen
8: M.
9: Hi, this is Eileen M. I'm a recovered... Hi, Eileen. ...recovered compulsive overeater in New Hampshire. Good morning. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Um, So I have come to believe that my character defects drive my disease and uh, in my interacting with other people, you know, particularly coworkers, and this is what this reading reminds me of is, is the work relationships, is that, you know, when I would get triggered at my job, you know, as long as I was in the food and not working on myself and, you know, not recovering, I was overreacting and I would, you know, it was easy to blame other people for not only you know, my problems at work, but my emotions, you know, as long as I focused and I I was focusing on the perceived wrongs of other people and, you know, what they were doing to me and how how they were treating me, you know, and as long as I could, um, you know, justify my reactions, you know, as long as I was focusing on them, it was like I could kind of go away and say, well, I'm the same one, there's something wrong with them and um you know i never focused on how i was you know in the world and um you know of course the closest relationships are the ones that that are the most vulnerable to this kind of way of living um so you know i was i was alienating people without even knowing it so um i wanted to share about that thank you so much
0: thanks eileen m larry k hey
5: mel good morning can you hear me okay i can Okay, great. Larry Kay, Recovered, Compulsive Reader from Chicago. Uh, Thanks for your service. So we're seeing the progression of the disease in Bill's life as he's continuing to struggle to to try to take some control. And and the insanity that is so intertwined with the unmanageability of his life isn't necessarily tied to his intellect. I'm guessing, I, I don't know, but I bet Bill would have still scored pretty well on a standard IQ test during this time. That would be my guess. Um, rather what the alcohol is doing is the alcohol owns him and it's driving Bill to do things that were irrational and were really a reflection of the instability of his thinking. Remember all action is born in thought. So alcohol is distorting his thinking despite all desire to live better. You know, Twinkies, Ho Ho's, they distorted my thinking and this distorted thinking is a vicious loop of destruction. So the distorted thinking feeds my desire to compulsively eat, despite the the horrible negative consequences. And these consequences are too much for me to bear. I can't handle these. The, I can't handle much of anything, these, this buildup of emotion. And so I'm driven back to the ding-dongs. And it's funny because the, the, the research from addiction science shows, you know, evidence of this claim and, and uh you know even when they look at peop- the difference between the brain of a normal person a non alcoholic and an alcoholic person, and we can see you know like an m r i of the brain we can see differences and here's what they found the brains of alcoholics show a significantly reduced white brain matter, and that's that that stuff that helps us with impulse control and learning new behaviors and and um uh, uh, and and so we can see so here's the deal unless i can experience an entire psychic change there's very little hope of my recovery and that that was the case for bill that was the case for me i had to have a complete psychic change that can't be explained by science that can't be explained i don't know that they can see the the psychic change the spiritual transformation on an MRI scan. I don't think you could see that in my white brain matter. Maybe science will someday be able to show that, but I don't believe you can see that today. But we certainly can see the effects of the difference between an alcoholic brain, if you will, and a non-alcoholic brain. We can see that in our impulse control. We can see that in all sorts of different ways. So, um, and I would guess that Bill's brain changed because God changed Bill. That's my belief. His higher power changed him. My higher power changed me. Not explainable by science, but now I don't think the way I used to think. I don't feel the way I used to feel. And so my actions are not a reflection of that that prevailing thinking. Grateful for this program. With that, I'll pass. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Larry
1: K. Nancy R.
10: Hi, thank you. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you for your service. My name is Nancy R. I'm a grateful, Recover compulsive overeater. I was really struck by this one line. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. I can identify with this so much because uh, when I was, as my disease progressed, I had, I really had a false sense of who I was and um, and how uh, uh, how my boundaries were not clear and um, how obnoxious and um, uh, I became a know-it-all and it was my way or the highway. And oftentimes, uh, I wouldn't get invited to events and my feelings would be uh, just so hurt because, you know, how dare they not invite me. Uh, I had no sense of who I was. And like he, uh, he's hanging around these brokerage houses and people uh, uh, didn't want to be bothered with him. And people didn't want to be bothered with me because I was so obnoxious, such a know-it-all. Um, this disease robbed me of, uh, of uh, a sense of reality. I had created my own reality of who I thought I was. Uh, I had no idea of who I was, uh, who the authentic me. Uh, the compulsive overeater was a, a chameleon. I, I changed for the occasion. Oh, thank God for recovery uh, today. Uh, this program, these steps, helped me to discover who I am, and for that I am so grateful. Thank you for letting me share.
0: Thank you, Nancy R. Bossa O.
11: Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Melanie, for your service, and I'm grateful we covered Compulsive Olita calling for Florida. You know, by the time I came to my program, my disease was getting very, very progressive. You know, I just passed, I crossed over, I don't know how much, how, how long before I came to the program, but, you know, I remember giving into the food, you know, again, when we come in the program, I surrender to the program, but before I surrender to my food because uh, I couldn't manage it any longer, and i remember feeling there's nothing I can do anymore to control this food, and I just thank God that, you know, somebody came, God sent somebody. I, that, you know, I had such a fear talking about God, but today I'm, I feel much comfortable, and I'm not afraid to say God uh, any longer. But I did have a fear of God, but anyways, um, I it w- I was ready to admit that you know I was powerless over the food, but for me it was really hard to admit my life was unmanageable in other areas, and 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 I needed to work in that area too to admit. Yeah, I you know the more I tried to manage my my life and by my will and by my own willpower, it was it was unmanageable, you know, so it was not just with the food and then I could see how I was being I was managing my own my own life in other areas. And um I love Bill's story because I can identify in other people's stories and I'm just saying it's by the grace of God. I didn't get to the point to to that point yet. I'm just saying yet, you know, because I did find the program Early, in early uh, years, I was like 41 years old, but I had been struggling for the food addiction for 25 years, so it's not that I don't understand the struggle, the, the, slu- the struggles, that manageability. I was ready. I was just so willing because I did not want to die. And then, again, I, you know, I needed to surrender to a power greater than myself, which it meant to God, whatever God was, you know, even though I was afraid, but I was ready because I didn't want to die, and I was ready to surrender to the program and the 12th step. And unless I had experienced a psychic change, there was no hope for me. My only chance was to surrender and to find a power greater than myself. And the rest of it is a history You know, learning about the allergy, putting the food down, and then um, that was just the beginning of step one, and then follow the steps the way they're laid out. I'm just so, so grateful that I have found Overeaters Anonymous and this vision for you that I can can continue and persist and persevere with my program. Thank you, and I'll pass.
0: Thank you, Vasa O., would anyone else like to share on paragraph three, page four? Kim Judy.
12: Kim and Judy.
0: Kathy K. And Monica. Kathy. Nessa
12: R. Nessa R.
0: Nessa. Jackie B.
12: Jackie. Leah M.
0: Hi, Leah. Let's go with that. Thank you so much. Okay, so I have Kim G. I have Judy F. I have Monica T. I have Kathy K. Nessa R. Jackie B. Leah M. Good morning. Kim G.
13: Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. What a beautiful story. And I think it's important. I don't know if it's been mentioned yet that this is a man talking about his progression of his illness who is recovered. He has an objectivity because of his being recovered that this is not the story he would have told if he was still drinking. And unfortunately, my experience is a lot of, you know, in AA and OA and many stories, what we hear are people who are still drinking, telling their stories. So it's great to hear it from that perspective of a recovered person. And I'm just going to kind of compare some of the pages that we have. We talked about on page one, love and applause. And now he's being described as an unwelcome hanger-on. We heard in a couple pages before, he has this sumptuous apartment, and now he's living in his in-law's house. We heard about his success when he arrived, the tune of paper millions, and now he's talking about having no real employment. I mean, look what this disease is dragging him down on. He says, mercifully, no one could guess. Now, I'm going to guess that maybe that's not true. I don't know about you, but I always thought, you know, if if I'm not eating in public, then people aren't going to notice I'm fat. I think a lot of people knew that Bill had a drinking problem, and he's thinking they're not seeing it. You know, I remember in college um, we had like a – Each floor had its own washers and dryers. And it was kind of customary that if you went there and the washer, the dryer was off, you would just throw the person's clothing on top of the washer and dryer. And I used to sit there while I was doing my laundry because I was so terrified that someone would do that and someone could see how large my underwear was because they didn't see it otherwise. I was under the impression if people didn't see the size of my clothing, they wouldn't see the size of my body. You know, I'm thinking of other memories in my last relapse which I'm in five years and I was in graduate school and I had to walk up three flights of stairs and every flight I would pretend I forgot something or I'd look in my purse or in my book bag because I couldn't walk up more than a flight of stairs without having to stop and catch my breath and I was so embarrassed. You know, We are driven, absolutely driven by a hundred forms of fear. Bill wants success. Bill wants money. Bill wants to provide for his family. And my desires, my desire for success, my desire to have a boyfriend, my desire for popularity, it terrified me and it drove me more into the food and into the isolation and just drawing the shades because I was incapable of living life. You know, we often hear that term, we've got to live life on life's terms. I have to tell you, that's what we're describing right now is living life on life's terms. It's power, it's prestige, it's property, it's self-propulsion. That's what killed me with living life on life's terms. What I've had to learn through these 12 steps is how do I live life through God's terms? How do I live life where I align my will with God so that I can live in harmony with the rest of the world? And we will see Bill learn to do that after page 8. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Kim G. Judy F.,
14: star 1. Thank you, Melanie. This is Judy F., I'm a compulsory eater recovered in Massachusetts and have a snow day today. Grateful for that to be here. And I'm just gonna set the timer. <clears throat> so, wow, I, I can so relate to this paragraph and to Bill's story of the progression of the disease and how everything important to me, the, the disease took over. Um, I was always before, um, you know, when I could quote, control the food, um, my work ethic was really strong. Work ethic, and the 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 more uh, progressive my disease, my my work ethic just went right down the tubes. And it was all about getting the food, and then how to get rid of the consequences of the food. And I had been um, laid off quote laid off three times, but it was really letting go because of my performance. And the last time it you know, just the disease just totally took over my life. And um, I was in sales, and I was making up, you know, just the, the dishonesty in order to get what I wanted. Um, so I would binge at night, and then um, to get rid of it, I would exercise during the day. So I would make up um, these proposals for makeup, uh, you know, that... These companies that didn't exist, or I'd go, to a drive to a office park and write down the company names and say, I had I, I had seen them and made up proposals to these companies that were not looking for phone systems, so that I could go to the the gym or um, I had someone I could play tennis with just to you know that um, the exercise bulimia that I had and then the laxative use and calling in sick and just anything to, uh, it just ran my life, and um, and it just the, the dishonesty, but I, I couldn't help it, and I would say, okay, today I'm going to have an honest days work, I'm not going to do it, and then sooner or later I'd be in the food, and then the whole cycle would start again, and it's so, you know, recovery and being recovered is, is so different, it's amazing what God can do through through working the steps, and you know, that surrender and hitting bottom, but I had every binge I had, every form of control I had needed to get to that bottom I hit. And, um, you know, just being an unwelcome hanger-on, just getting um, laid off, it, you know, so demoralizing, and yet um, I kept doing it. And so that's where this disease is so powerful, but God and these steps and, you know, the the power of just... Being sick and tired of being sick and tired and doing it for one day, that small surrender was huge because of this higher power I have today and the power of the steps. And with that, I pass. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Judy. F. Monica T?
14: Good
15: morning, Melanie. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica T, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Florida. So here we are in Bill's story and this whole chapter is about the progression of this nasty, nasty disease. And so, so far we've seen that he's, he's um, progressed down into isolation, he's lost, uh, lost friends, uh, we've seen deterioration of his marriage, we've seen other delusions he's had, we've seen him being fired, loss of employment, and how, here in this paragraph what I see here is humiliation. Um, you know, Bill was a real prideful man, and I just can't imagine how humiliating this must have been to him. Here we are back in the 19, early 30s here, we're saying, or in the early 30s, and, you know, the man was the provider of the home, and the little wife stayed at home and took care of the, of the house. That was, you know, the norm. How humiliating this must have been to him to have to go live with his in-laws, and then his wife had to go get a job as a sales clerk at Macy's. But did this, you know, did any of this do anything, change anything? No. And, and I can relate to humiliation, you know. Did any time that I was humiliated, did that do anything for me, you know? No, it didn't. Uh, You know, being caught stealing somebody else's food or just being seen 230 pounds, you know, just huge looking, you know, sloppy, whatever. Um, That didn't do it either for me. This disease had me and it's got Bill. And um, so and it's just amazing how he's just going to go further down. But thank God we have a solution. Thank God. I have found a solution, you know, OA, the 12 steps, working the steps. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Monica T. Kathy K.
16: Good morning, Melanie. Thank you for your service. This is Kathy Kaye, Recovered in Boston. Um, what comes to my mind here, uh, after listening to the wonderful shares before me, um, is that I was at the height of my disease and thinking I was just fine. Uh, The extraordinary denial and dishonesty, um, I never realized until right now how deep it went. I thought I was fine because I still had a good job. I still had my family intact. I wasn't hugely overweight but the truth was which i began to see um was that i was killing myself with food i was a type one diabetic and my blood sugars were in the 400s 500 and i could not stop eating i was irritable and discontent with my husband and my young son and uh running havoc in the household and the bottom line was anxiety was my dominant emotion always, anxiety and fear. There was very little else, although resentment also popped up a lot. Um, you know, um, I think the scariest thing for me about this disease is that it can go unnoticed for so long, um, And I'm so grateful we review this and we share our own experience to keep the memory alive. Um, I'm not sure if I didn't keep reading Bill's story and working with sponsees and reflecting on my own experience uh, that if I didn't do those things through working the 12 steps on a daily basis, I could easily go into denial again. Um, So I'm so grateful we're back at this part of the book, Um, and I know that for me, you know, complete honesty, complete acceptance of step one is what enables me to stay in recovery uh, on a daily basis, and for that I'm grateful, and I pass.
0: Thank you, Kathy Kay. Nessa R.?
17: Hi, this is Nessa R. Did you call on me? I did. Good morning. Oh, great. I was unmuting, so I didn't hear it. Good morning, Vision, for you. This is Nessa R., a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. Um, So uh, we're seeing the progression of Bill's disease, and um, one of the manifestations is um, his... um, I guess "quote unquote" ability to control his intake of alcohol at times and, and achieve, you know, periods of sobriety until he cannot do it anymore, and then just throws up his hands in the air and settles for the the oblivion um, and the numbing effect of alcohol, um, and that's the way it was for me. I um, I was at the checkout line at the store yesterday, and I saw uh, a magazine, an Oprah magazine, and it said something along the lines of, you know, with her in the cover, I have made uh, peace with food. And, um, you know, we've seen her publicly gain weight, lose weight, gain weight, lose weight many, many, many times, as was the case for me. And I also made peace with food so many times in my life, either because I had found The right diet, the right um, regimen of exercise, the right method, like, you know, starving so that I could shed, you know, 20 pounds in one week, um, uh, purging and all that kind of stuff. And I did that until I couldn't do it anymore. And then, of course, um, the weight came back with a vengeance. And then at that time, at those times, I, I, I would again make peace with food, but now I was in the sense of, well, you know, if I'm not going to be thin, I might as well be fat and eat and be happy, you know, settling for for the so-called fat serenity. But the truth is that um, never at any of those times, whether I was, I was uh, controlling the food or the food was controlling me, um, I had really not made peace with the food. Um, I was just in the throes of the powerlessness and unmanageability of this disease. And this is where Bill finds himself now. Um, And, you know, how many times do we have to do that until we get get desperate enough, until we're in enough pain that we can say, I cannot live this way anymore. I cannot live controlling the food, and I cannot live – um, giving myself over entirely to the food. Both are too painful. Both are difficult. Both are uncomfortable. And I guess I had to get to a place where the pain of not being in the food, uh, sorry, the pain of being in the food was greater than the pain of not being in the food and made me desperate to try things that I have never tried, like, you know, give up, um, my sugar and my flour and my coffee and my bagels and all that kind of stuff a hundred percent. And then um, try the steps. Try the steps honestly, according to the big book, not only the the ones that I like in the way I like at the times I like, but really, really, truly, honestly, giving this abstinence thing and this step thing and the God thing an honest chance and then things began to change and i am not fighting food uh, anymore and now truly i have made peace with food because food is not an issue anymore in my life you know food is something that i eat for breakfast lunch and dinner to give me energy to function and that's it and it doesn't really matter what i eat uh, it doesn't matter if it's lettuce and tomatoes or tuna or chicken or it doesn't matter. You know, that is true peace with food and what a blessing um, to live like that and I pass. Thank you, Nessa R. Jackie B., you're next.
18: Hi. Thank you, Melanie C. It's Jackie B. from the Bronx, uh, Recover Today, One Day at a Time. Um I had re- I-, I like to read before uh, I get on to A Vision for You, and then I heard the shares and stuff. And I find it amazing today how, you know, it used to be the slightest little thing, uh, the checkbook didn't balance. Um, I lived with my mother, and yet I had to pay the rent for my mother. Um, I had to give her all the respect of being the mother, but I had to be the husband, even though my father was there. um, I had to be the parent to my parents. Um, May she rest in peace. Um, My father's still alive. He's 80. I'm still an active alcoholic. Um, But yet, I find it so amazing today that working the steps through the big book, being of service to others, I now see a difference. Um, Today, you know, when people... uh, start to contact me, I start to say, you know what, I'm grateful today that I'm not the Jackie I was, that I can see the manic, the craziness, the um, unmanageability, the uh, false sense of control that I thought I had back then um, compared to today. Today, I count the blessings. The blessings are that, you know, when uh, a glued mousetrap gets stuck to my clothes, I don't go, oh, my God, the world's coming to an end. I say, God, you know, help me stay relaxed, comfortable, and calm, and find the solvent. And you know what? I found the solvent right away, and I said, thank you, God, for helping me, you know? Or um, my husband and my daughter come home on a school night from, you know, from an evening out in the movies when it's a school night, and Instead of me, you know, chastising them, I say, you know, it was a school night. And that's all I have to say. And that was it. You know, I am just so grateful. I am, I'm just so grateful. to. Jackie, I
1: think we lost you. Are you there? I think we lost Jackie for her last little bit. Let's move on then to Leah M. Are you available? Leah M. Hi, one.
12: Melanie. Thank you so much. Oh. Thank you.
16: Mm-hmm.
12: We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Uh, hardly drew a sober breath for five years. Um You know, I relate to this progression that Bill's writing about here. You know, the disease is tightening the screws on Bill because the truth about addiction is that it always gets worse. It never gets better. And that was true for me. You know, the chains of compulsive overeating were too soft to be felt until they were too hard to be broken, meaning this disease wrapped its chains around my neck, you know, and tightened the screws around me. Um, before I even realized what the heck was going on, um, I was bowing to the demands of this disease. And, you know, as a young person in my late teens, I hardly recognized myself I mean, I'm not even talking about the physical manifestations of the illness, but like Bill writes, a brawl with a taxi driver. I mean, I was raging, uh, you know, in my bedroom, uh, you know, throwing things against the wall. I mean, (laughs) what happened to me? You know, I was a smiling, friendly, uh, loving, sweet kid. And all of a sudden, this anger and this uh, bitterness and depression and isolation and suicidal thinking began to bubble up out of me. Um, I was losing control of my vengeance. I couldn't predict when they would end. Um, My life was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards, standards. You know, there was no facet of my life that was not being touched by this illness. My school was affected. Any employment that I had was affected. My emotions were being affected. I was not behaving in the way I normally behave socially it was being affected my relationships were going by the wayside financially I couldn't maintain you know uh, a checking account when I went off to college my life goals were crumbling my family problems were increasing Um, and I had the inability to see the reality of my condition which of course continued to lead me to deny the disease's existence. Um, There were food stains all over my relationships. You know, I just could not manage. I could not manage. My world was getting smaller as the disease was getting bigger and stronger, just like Bill right here, just like Bill right here. Thank God for the 12 steps that brought in a sense of harmony with the universe and a unity around me, a unity with life uh, that allowed me to become sane once again. And with that, I pass. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Leah M. It looks like time will allow for two, possibly three more. Who would like to share on paragraph three, page four? Melissa C., Lisa H., Leslie W., W. hi, Lisa, and I have um, somebody with a W. Who's that? Leslie? Yes. I'll, I'll take those three. Thank you so much. Melissa C., Lisa H., Leslie W. Hi, Melissa.
19: Hi. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, everyone. It's Melissa C., Recovered compulsive overeater in New York, and um, you know, what really grabbed me was the hardly drew a sober breath for five years, and um, I could relate to that because, um, you know, as, as my disease progressed, um, it, it grew from, you know, occasional binging, binging on the weekend, binging just at night, binging just after work, um, to waking up in the morning, you know, and, and already I was eating, you know, it was, I, I think I was hardly awake before, um, the food was in my mouth for the plan to get the food was giving me the comfort I needed to get out of bed, you know? And so every morning was physical discomfort, um, you know, terrible heartburns. My stomach hurting, a sour taste in my mouth, full of self hatred, um, cursing the clothes in my closet, um, and yet I was already planning when I was getting my next fix, and um, you know, and so this disease um, for me, it turned me into someone I didn't like very much. I didn't know, and I didn't like, and. I really see that in Bill's story that he goes from on top of the world this beautiful apartment, you know the king of the golf course to um jobless fighting with taxi drivers, wife having to to work, living with his in laws um and yet any logical person would say, Okay, leave the substance alone it's it's ruining your life and yet I had no ability to do that. You know, it was destroying everything I had and yet it it defies logic, you know? And so there's, there's two alternatives. It becomes clearer and clearer in his story. My two alternatives are recover, live recovered or die. You know, there's no middle of the road. And so, um, you know, it seems so reasonable. Death of the food, put the food down. I mean, that's the only
0: thing
6: that makes any sense. And um, thank you. that, all time. Thank you, Melissa. Lisa H., you're next. Good morning. Thank you, Melanie. This is Lisa H., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Tennessee. And I'm drawn to that same line that said, hardly draw a sober breath. You know, um, here Bill continues to describe the, the depth of his disease and In reflecting on my own disease, um, I remember how hard I tried to control my eating. Um, I would make it to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and at that point, I was so restless and irritable um, that the sugar for me was the best choice um, to calm myself, um, which, of of course, worked for about a minute. um, And and it would set off this phenomenon of craving, and I would have to go back again and again until the bag was empty. Um, and then as if nothing happened, I would, I'd make dinner and eat that too. Um, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know how to deal with this buildup of everyday human emotions as, as we hear Harlan say. Um, I had no idea about the allergy of the body um, until I started reading this book, this big book and listening to you all. Um, and now almost two years abstinent and recovered, I'm, i I'm a different person, um, by having a a recovered guide and working. Um, and that's, that's the operative word for me, working these 12 steps. I have a new way of dealing with my everyday feelings and the mental obsession, um, has been lifted and that's the gift today that I'm grateful for every day. Um, you know, I just have this 24 hour reprieve, um, uh, that it, and I have to continue um, for me, continue to carry this message and to continue to grow and to change um, into the person my higher power wants me to be, um, and I can only I can only keep it if if I give it away, um, and that's all I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa H. Leslie W. You thank
13: you.
8: Thank you so much for your service today. This is Leslie W., Recovered in Tennessee. Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of pick apart this sentence here, which says my wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. You know, um, for me, my husband had to really pick up the slack um, when my disease was at its worst and, you know, I just thought that I had a weight problem. I didn't think that I haven't had an unmanageability problem. Um, but I look back and I see that I was a prisoner trapped in my own home. Um, I had lost many friends because I couldn't, obviously, maintain that friendship. Um, it was Groundhog Day every single day. I had a newborn baby at home and it was just like every morning I woke up dreading the day and it should have been a beautiful time but it was a miserable time because all I wanted was to be alone with my food towards the end that's all I cared about I was suicidal I could not take care of anything I could not pay bills I could not manage my own home um my home was chaotic and unorganized um, i couldn't make it through the night without eating i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't sleep um i didn't care about anything my appearance um you know i did the bare minimum to survive and to take care of my son and that was it um but today i, I wake up every morning and I commune with my higher power. I love being present in my life. And I have a good marriage. And I have two sweet, lovely boys. But uh, I just, um, I'm getting emotional because of all the gifts that this program has given me. And uh, if you're new to this program, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give up because there is beauty at the end of that pain. I promise you, with that I pass.
0: Thank you very much, Leslie W. And thank you for all that shared this morning. It is the end of our meeting. Please join us for our second unrecorded hour of study immediately following closing. We will now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Lisa H. please read page
6: 164, A Vision for You?